Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined, as I always am, by my good friend and producer, Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing? It's Thanksgiving week here in the US, John, so uh, just getting ready for that turkey. You feeling very thankful? Absolutely, of course. I mean, I'm here with you. And another thing we have to feel thankful about is our guest today, because we are joined by Sam Tai, who is often seen on the TIFO IRL channel, also seen on lots of other outlets as well. And we are talking everything Unai Emery and Aston Villa, because there's probably no other team in the last calendar year who's had quite the vertiginous rise that Aston Villa have had. Mike, you've just listened to that conversation. What did you make of it? I really enjoyed Sam kind of talking about the evolution from the team under Steven Gerrard to Unai Emery. Under Gerrard, there wasn't a clear picture or direction or identity, whereas Unai Emery came in, wasn't necessarily popular amongst fans, and there were there were some groans, but there was a certain style. And I think that took some time, but we're now seeing how Emery has molded this Villa team into a potential, you know, still early, but potential Champions League uh, qualifying team. Yeah, and I know as a Liverpool fan, it will have been hard for you to to say those last few words. But I think, again, as always, the best thing for us to do is to just move straight into hearing what Sam has to say about Unai Emery and his Aston Villa. Unai Emery has taken the Premier League by storm. Since arriving midway through the 2022 season, he's had Aston Villa putting themselves in contention for a spot in the Champions League. Now, the last time Emery was in the Premier League, things didn't go quite so well for him. So why is everything coming up Emery at Aston Villa at the moment? Well, we're fortunate enough to be joined by someone who has followed Unai Emery's Aston Villa from concept to its most recent form. And looking at the running order, I see, Sam, that you have, in fact, written this and you've written some really nice things about yourself. But Sam Tai is a Villa fan. He is a great guy and a truly sensational podcaster as well, who also works with Sky Sports, ESPN, who scored and, of course, here with us on the TIFO IRL channel. Sam, how are you doing? That wasn't me. I'm great, but that wasn't me. That was all your words, John. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, we are going to talk about Unai Emery and Aston Villa, and we're going to break the episode into three sections following three of our recent videos about Aston Villa on the TIFO IRL feed. So if you really want to do this podcast properly, make sure you go and check those videos out. But the first section, what we're going to do is we're going to look back at last season and discuss how representative last season was of Emery's tenure so far. Then we're going to move into a second section where we talk about the summer transfer activity and the run-up to the current season. And then in the final section, we will move on to talk about the season that we are currently in and chat about whether or not Emery has made Villa into a genuine top four contender. Who thought those words would be asked uh, uh, even this time last year? But let's start off at the very beginning. So Sam, Unai Emery signed by Villa on the 24th of October 2022. You know your European football pretty well. You follow Spanish football pretty well. What were your initial feelings on hearing that Emery was the new Villa manager? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, when when your club appoints a new manager I feel like there's a kind of a a life cycle of thought that goes into it you get your immediate reaction and then you stew on it for a bit and you almost come to the complete opposite verdict and then eventually you probably come back to your initial feeling you always get that gut feeling yes or no and my gut feeling on Emery was that this was the best manager Villa could possibly hope to appoint he was just the, the most attainable realistic and best option the club could ever dream of getting in the room with and convincing and at the time, there was some talk of a pursuit for Ruben Amorim at Sporting, who's obviously done a great job. Um, some news leaked about that release clause being very expensive. We're talking £15 million plus for a manager. And we all know that that's not well mon- money well spent, particularly in the wake of the Julian Nagelsmann stuff at Bayern. So I think Villa ended up paying about £5 million for Emery, which is still quite a lot for a manager, but m- much more reasonable. And my immediate feeling was they can't do better than that. 
Like based on where they are on the table, 16th, you cannot do better than Unai Emery. Some other fans may be less familiar with European football, understandably, if you just watch the English stuff. He comes with baggage and they weren't quite as, as sure. It didn't end well at Arsenal. It did not end well at PSG. It's largely been great in Spain. But he had Premier League baggage. And so a lot of people were perhaps focusing on what went wrong at Arsenal and why that would be a problem. And maybe weren't focusing enough on why it went well in Spain and initially at PSG to a point and why that might benefit Villa. So I was I was glass half full for sure because I just didn't see a realistic scenario where they could get anyone better. Yeah, and it's interesting hearing you mention that, that baggage because I do think that has impacted the way that people have viewed him at Villa. I feel as yeah. though Villa fans feel as though he should be in the conversations about you know elite managers and it often isn't thrown in there. Do you think that's just simply because of that baggage? Probably, yeah. That's that's some people's exposure to Unai Emery is Arsenal and then Villa. And actually, it's, you know, without wanting to point fingers, they, they carry their own scars here. But a lot of the time, when, when Unai Emery is talked about as one of the best managers and, and the run that Villa are on and stuff like that, which we'll get into, it's the Arsenal fans who go, yeah, enjoy it while it lasts. Or, yeah, I remember that. And then it went downhill, because it did. And so the curve and the drop-off for Unai Emery's tenure at Arsenal you automatically assume that the same thing will happen at Villa. Now, so far, the drop-off has not occurred. But the Arsenal fans have been relatively quick to point out to Villa fans, again, not pointing fingers, but they're they're trying to warn you, like, I remember this, enjoy it, it's good while it lasts, because it's going to go wrong. And that's the baggage that we talk about, that's because there's scars from, from previous marriages. Yeah, whenever you bring a new manager in, they're always replacing an old manager. And usually that old manager is a manager who's been moved on because they haven't done very well. It's very rare that you're going to be replacing a manager who's been picked up because they're doing so well. Um, Steven Gerrard was that that coach. I'm interested in your thoughts on that transition from Steven Gerrard to Unai Emery. Uh, did you anticipate that that was going to be the, the perfect transition that it's turned out to be? Well, it's a night and day change because the knock on Gerard was always that he was a very hands-off manager when it came to the coaching side of things and the tactical side of things. I'm sure you remember the, the, the common vein of thought, which was that Michael Beale, Mick Beale, was the brains and that Gerard was the presence. Obviously, Mick Beale goes and he rejected a job from Wolves and then he went and signed with, with QPR as manager. And so he left so Gerard ended up picking up a new assistant in Neil Critchley, who basically left the job at Blackpool, who had just got promoted into the championship to go and become the assistant manager at Villa, which for a lot of people was a bit of a weird transition, going from the manager to the assistant. Um, but it all did quickly fall apart a lot of the time with these things because we're not we're not in there. We don't know, right? We're going off reports. We're going off rumours. We don't know exactly how much of an effect this has on that or that has on this. But the post-Mick Beale... Villa did not look good. Uh, very unorganised, a bit clueless tactically. And Gerard's response was to largely question his players in public. So he'd get to the post-match and he'd criticise all of his strikers and ask for more. Uh, and then you get Emery walking the door and, you know, he gets the, gets the international break, he gets his, his feet under the table. He works really hard in that first week on pressing and counter-pressing and rest defence and where to position yourself. The, the club start posting these videos of him being really hands-on and very specific about where Ollie Watkins should be standing in relation to X, Y or Z when defending and transitioning into counter-pressing. And you immediately get this feeling that things are going to be a little bit different. More intense, more specific and much better. And obviously what you're talking about there is, you know, the imposition of tactical ideas and, and structure and system-based mm-hmm. thinking, which is obviously what Unai Emery is pretty famous for doing across his tenures at very diff- various different clubs. What was your first impression then of Unai Emery's Aston Villa on the pitch? What, how did those did that tactical um, exact mind mindset actually, how did that impose itself on Villa going forward? Well, his first game is Manchester United at home. Um and we're a year on now, but a year ago, Man United were pretty fierce. Uh, and Villa actually hadn't beaten United at home in the Premier League since 1995. <laughs> it's like like 20 years of pain. Ruud van Nistelrooy, Paul Scholes, Cristiano Ronaldo, backheels, Wayne Rooney. Like the, the list is endless, right? This game is a nightmare for Villa. And Unai Emery wins it. And he wins it in part thanks to... The counter-pressing that I just talked about with the videos they're releasing with Ollie Watkins, they caught 
United in the build-up phase over and over again and managed to convert that into goals. Leon Bailey, Jacob Ramsey catching Man United high up and using athleticism to create a bit of separation and slamming a few goals home. And it was it was the immediate fruition of what we'd been seeing on those social media posts. Now, I know obviously that can be it can sound a bit like outcome bias, but like ultimately the bottom line is that the performance Villa put in that day was very, very well organised and like it was very specific. They all knew what they were doing and the criticism of the end of the Gerrard tenure was this lot don't know where they're supposed to be stood. Like it's just free for all and it's not working at all. The midfield is wide open, the gaps are huge, distances between the lines are huge, no one's doing anything in tandem with one another and that day already they all worked as a team and you could tell from that moment not only is that a historic and momentous win, right? But it was a pretty momentous performance and you could tell it was about to change. Let's start talking about the, the tactical aspect of that first iteration then of Emery's Villa last season. What were the, you've mentioned the, the counter-pressing already. Mm. What were the other things that stuck out for you early on in, in Emery's tenure? Well, he immediately drilled into the players that they would be building out from the back under pressure in a very orchestrated way. You know, when you do build up under pressure, when you're de- you do need to do it in certain patterns. We all know this. You, you You've covered it yourself and multiple teams on TIFO IRL. You need to do it in certain patterns. So he set about installing those patterns, which Villa didn't really have under Gerard. Um, and to be honest, it, it wasn't received that well by the crowd. Um, Villa Park is a bit of a jumpy place at times. And, you know, when Emmy Martinez passes the ball into Douglas Louise on the edge of his own box, he's facing his goal. He's got a player bearing down on his shoulder. And he's trying to flick the ball back out to Mings or to Concer, who will then play through another line of pressure. It's it's pretty nervy stuff, right? It's pretty scary. And for like a good four to five months, Villa Park was a pretty jittery place when Villa were building out from the back. It took ages for the whole stadium to really start to feel at ease that when Villa did that, it was going to be okay. Like it's it's exercising years of demons in those fans' minds of cheap giveaways, easy goals. And there was one in his second or third game. He beat Brighton away from home. And the goal that Brighton scored, Louise messed it up on the edge of the box. He got pounced on and he conceded. So there's your early scare point there, right there. For one of the first three games. The, the worst thing that can happen when you do this has already happened and we've already seen it. Again, it takes a while to get over that. So that was the other major feature. It was, we're playing through this pressure. No matter what they're sending at us, we're playing through this pressure and you were going to get better at this because this is our style of play. It took the players a little while to adjust. It took the fans several months longer. Do you think they're generally appreciative of that approach now? Do you? It's fine now. You noticed a, a change in the in the fan base where they are yeah. willing the players to actually build through that pressure. It's it's fine now. There's yeah, there's much more composure in the crowd. Um, I'd say even as late as April last year, uh, I went to Villa Fulham, one one nil. Yep, Villa Park was pretty jittery that night. I mean, there's a lot on the line by this point. I'm skipping ahead in time a little bit, but there's a lot on the line in terms of a European place. But then I went back, last game I went to was Palace at home. So September, it was fine. Everyone was like, it's fine. fine. No one's worried. So the the, the transition took a while, but it's there. I guess you've got to see the you know the outcome of, of that kind of approach and, and that has been what's happened because yeah. obviously Villa have, have flown pretty much from when Emery arrived but I've just got the lineup actually for that game against Manchester United the 3-1 win mm. up on up on the uh, the computer in front of me and um, Martinez in goal and then Matt, Matty Cash, Conser, Mings, Dean as the back line uh, obviously this changes quite a bit I think in the first few weeks but um, we then have Leander Dendonka of all people and D- Douglas Luiz in that double pivot um, and then you have the really nice triangles of centre back on either side, full back on either side, and then the the double pivot player on either side, giving you those triangles to be able to build up from the back. Yeah. If you can't build up through, there's the option of playing passes forward into half spaces where you've got these narrow wingers. So we've got uh, Buendia and Ramsey yeah. in this game, um, but we've we've seen a number of different players in in those positions. If you don't find the half space pass, you can move the ball around through the goalkeeper or the other pivot player into the other triangle on the other side. Yeah, flip it to the side. Yeah, Yeah, and so you've got exactly the same sort of structure on either side. Uh, We've got Leon Bailey and Ollie Watkins up front. But again, you know, there's there's plenty of possibilities to play maybe uh, more of a lone striker and give yourself a little bit more of an option of more players in midfield. Um, And that that was pretty much the the approach that you took last season and it it worked pretty well, right? I I love Emery's unorthodox sort of 4-4-2. 
where he has consistently through the years played what you would consider to be a number eight profile, like more of a central midfielder on the wide midfield role. And at times he's just used two of them. So like Villa's midfield four last year quite often consisted of four central midfielders. Now obviously Ramsey can play from wide. He's got a bit of dynamism. John McGinn ended up on the right-hand side quite a lot. He was really good. They've both got tremendous defensive ethic. So they're able to cover their fullbacks really, really well. And that was really important. But then what that means is that where you would traditionally have wingers there, usually they end up up front. And so Bailey played off the striker in a more central role. So did Buendia, although he's obviously more comfortable in a central role. And this season, Diaby came as a winger, is now playing as a support striker. I love the fact that Emery does this. I, I love his unorthodox style of 4 4 2. I think it works really, really well. I think it's defensively really solid, or can be. Um, it gets all the players working for each other, and it puts at least three players in what you would assume on paper to be very uncomfortable roles for them, and it never is. It never is. It's great. I mean, I've even seen Francis Coquelin play wide midfield for Villarreal under Emery. And I'm, I'm like, how the hell is he doing that? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make any sense at all. But it works. Yeah, and there's maybe something to say here about flexibility from Emery. We're going to talk about that in the th final section because there's been quite a bit of flexibility in the current season. But he de definitely has the potential in that 4-4-2 to have huge amounts of flexibility right you can you can have one fullback or the other being the one who pushes forward you can have both if you want and you can there's there's various ways to be able to protect that defensively but you've already mentioned like Leon Bailey you can play him in a wide berth or you can play him centrally and then you can use whichever midfielder you've got on in the wide area in the second line in the midfield you can come inside if Bailey's wide and yeah. you can overload in the midfield from one side or the other and it means that you have a huge amount of scope to be flexible and the result of that is always opposition dependent you can you can do things to cause them problems right yeah 100 percent. I mean there's no doubt that he has a he has a certain thing in mind Emery like last season from January onwards there was a left side a clear left-sided bias to Villa's play because Mings was the better passer of the two centre-backs. And Alex Moreno was signed in January, who's like mega fast uh, and was consistently overlapping. And then Ramsey was sort of shifting inwards into the half space. And, you know, he's a central midfielder profile. So him dropping into that, that space was really important. It was very obvious that Villa wanted to play down the left. But you've got other options. And you've got other ways of doing it. And Watkins has spent the last couple of years like quietly winning duels against centre-backs. He's much better in that regard to others, so you can skip over the press if you need to. Yeah. There's, the right-hand side is, is good too. McGinn tucking in, Cash going round. It was actually Ashley Young for a lot of last year um, due to Cash coming back from the World Cup late and then getting a bit of an injury. But it, doesn't, it didn't really matter what, what Emery did. Like it, The team always functioned one way or another, and that flexibility is, is massive for a team who don't just have like the best players. You know, They're not just the best players. So we've talked about two things there, basically, structure and flexibility. And the beneficiary of both of those things has been the players in particular. So which players last season do you think benefited the most from the Emery appointment? Well, the number one answer is Douglas Louise because he wasn't allowed to play under Gerrard for whatever reason. Um, to the point where he played cup games and came on and he ended up scoring from corners just to prove a point. He kept shooting from corners and he kept going in. He's got like three but he was doing that because he was like, will you pick me, please? For whatever reason, he wasn't in the team. Now, Emery immediately figured out that he's the best midfielder at the club. So that one's gone. So Louise is the one that came into the team. But of the guys that were, were already playing, I mean, the answer is literally all of them. They've all got better, right? But Esri Konsa had been in a bit of a rough patch. There was a spell for Konsa during the lockdown season. He was phenomenal. He was absolutely phenomenal. And then the following year, he did. He dropped off. He dropped off and he's back to his absolute best now. I say, I say, I, I refer to Konsa as like Saliba light. It's got a lot of characteristics that are very similar to William Saliba. He's not as good on the ball, but his kind of passive defensive style, his ability to beat almost anybody in the channels, win fouls to reset play, uh, the body type, the speed... He's very William Saliba, and he's looking a lot like that again. And we've just seen him get called up for his first yes. England squad. So, yeah, he's, obviously that, that has translated into recognition elsewhere. 100%, yeah. Um, and then the other one would be Ollie Watkins, who was also recently back in the England squad. Um, Watkins was always good, but his all-round game and his discipline as a forward has improved so much under Unai Emery. Like, he's stopped him from making pointless runs 
that drag him out of the centre. He's still obviously got the mobility. He can still run in behind. But he's really trying to get Watkins to stay within the sort of central column of the pitch and act as the reference point and the focal point. Yes, use your speed, but also your one-touch link play has to be better, and it now is. The up, back and through can run through Ollie Watkins now rather than just someone else. And the fact that he's always there, always occupying, allows Musa Diaby to float and move around. Or yeah, Last season it would have been Emi Buendia. And of course allows loads of rotations in the wide areas where everybody can build up and move around. But he's trapping at least two players into the centre. So there's been some refinement to Watkins' game there. And obviously he refound the goal-scoring trail. Because Gerard didn't seem to like him that much. I, I couldn't tell you that there was a single forward at the club that it seemed like Gerard liked. He flipped between Ings and Watkins and didn't really seem to get a tune out of either of them consistently. And Emery got in and was like, that's my guy. He sold Ings in January. It's just like, I don't need you. I've got Watkins. That's it. I don't want, don't want the matter to be complicated. I don't want to have to pick between you. He just sold one and just picked Watkins. Now, obviously, Villa were pretty much performing well from the off as soon as Unai Emery arrived. In fact, the argument could be made that, that their, their performances in terms of results... Who would make that argument? Yeah, well, we're almost too good, right? <laughs> and yeah, you're right. In fact, I made an infam infamous video last season suggesting that uh, Aston Villa were overperforming their underlying numbers. It wasn't the case that they were going to be the second best team in, in the Premier League that season, that there was going to be some level of regression to a mean. Um, obviously, it didn't go down very well with, with Villa fans. Um, and we don't need to relitigate that video again, because I think that video has been talked about more than it deserves to be talked about. But it was definitely the case that that early run with Emery was unsustainable. And it did prove to be the case last season that they, they sort of tailed off a little bit towards the end in terms of um, results starting to, to maybe match some of the, the performance levels. Um, what do you make of that overperformance? Because I think you've just made a video this morning, actually, where you, we've looked at the, the XG, a rolling XG chart, which shows you the chances that are being created on a regular basis by Villa versus the chances they're conceding on a regular basis. And it was very much the case in the first season under Emery that, you know, the, the, the chances conceded were higher than the, and, 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 and of a greater quality than the chances being generated. So there was something that was, was going on there. What did you make of that period? Well, I didn't like the video either. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard to deny that you had a point. Um, I'm... I'm still a bit baffled by a lot of what happened last season. Um, and I do genuinely find it quite difficult to analyse, potentially because there's not a full amount of impartiality going on. Um, but the run was obviously incredibly magical. And when that sort of thing happens, you need to ride the waves at some point. Villa were very good in a specific game state last season, which was take the lead really early and then dictate from there. And they actually did an awful lot of what you've been talking about on TIFO IRL with regard to Brighton and utilising artificial transitions. Villa did, Villa did just as much of it, really. Take the lead and then Conza just stands there with the ball, studs on the ball, invite the press, pass it left to Mings, Mings up to Ramsey. Ramsey has the, the mobility and the physicality to just body someone and just travel with it and then bang, you're in transition when you already had the ball. It was important for Villa to start moving away from that where possible. It didn't quite happen last year. It was it, The season was just short enough for that to work consistently. And as you say, towards the end, there were a couple of results. They lost at Old Trafford 1-0, lost at Molyneux 1-0. And when the, when the loss to Wolves came in, you were like, that might be it for the European dream. Because the games left on the docket are Spurs at home, Anfield, and then a final day against Brighton. But seven points from those nine and it was okay possibly because they got to use those artificial transitions in those kind of games and they and they scored early against Brighton and against Spurs. Um, coincidentally, by the way, Villa were the first team to figure out Trent's inverting. So Liverpool were on an eight-game win streak and then Villa went to Anfield. John McGinn completely nullified it and they drew one all. It was the first game Liverpool had not won since Trent moved into midfield. So again, you want to talk about Emery's tactical chops, that they, the, literally the first team to not lose to Liverpool in like two months for that. And that was a huge part of that. But it did start to run a little bit dry. Obviously, it was linked to taking the lead. We're still seeing a bit of that this season, which we can come to. 
But what it meant was if you can get over the line, which they did, you need to diversify over the summer. You need to get better on the ball because a lot of this stuff that Villa are doing is very reactive. It's quick start and then it's reactive. You need to get better in an on-ball situation, which they did try to do. Yeah, and that's why I love the fact that you've mentioned Roberto De Zerbi because for me, Emery is in that school of, of you know, being able to control games through tempo rather than, I think, what we see a lot in the Premier League is the, the teams at the top like to control the ball, yes, through, through, through tempo, but through possession and, and through the ability to control uh, the ball like that. Whereas I think what we see from teams like Villa, from Brighton as well, is that they rely heavily on being able to generate chances by destabilising the opposition, by pulling them forward, baiting them, creating these these game states that are a little bit more chaotic and then being well set up to to really benefit from them. And inevitably what happens is that once you start becoming a team where people think, you know, this is a this is a decent side who are going to hurt us if we do that, opposition start sitting deeper against you. They have you. to sit off, yeah. And you have to start thinking about different ways of being able to approach different games. As you said, it's fine if you're playing against teams at the top half of the table because they're probably going to come out against you and leave those spaces open. But the, the big question is going to be now, how do you start uh, controlling games in other ways as well? So so Villa, Villa came up against this at the very end of last season. It started to creep in. I'm sure you're, you'll be as shocked as I am often, John, but it's amazing, isn't it, how slow the Premier League is to react tactically to a certain thing. And Villa were clearly doing this for like four months. And it took until the very end of the season for anybody to go, maybe we shouldn't press them. Like it's an ast- it took an astonishing amount of time for a team to turn up and go, I'm not falling into that trap. One of the teams was Leicester. Villa played Leicester away. They won 2-1. Bertrand Troyora scored a ridiculous goal to win it late on. It was a little bit fortunate, but it was a great goal. And Leicester had decided not to press Villa. Wolves. The game they lost at Molyneux. <laughs> We're not pressing you. And it started to come unstuck. And that's why, again, I say the, the season was just short enough for this to become not a massive problem. It got over the line and they were able to get to the summer and go, right, we need to plan for that. We need to make sure we're better in those scenarios because there are a couple of slips there and a couple of near misses that you're referring to that if the game, if literally if the season was three games longer, could have been terminal. And that brings us to the second section because that, that we're at the end of the season, we're moving into the summer um, and obviously the summer brings with it the transfer window. So at the end of the, the season, with some of these questions being raised in your head, where were the areas where you thought Villa needed to improve based on that previous season? Yeah, so usually when people get asked this question, their stock answer is positions, right? right. And I do have some positions for you, but the major need for Villa going into the summer was they needed to buy some speed. It was actually a characteristic. And I basically didn't mind, slash didn't care, which position it came in. You need speed. Like you just like the top teams have quick players. Quick players are really expensive because speed is a game changer. But Villa for a long time had been too slow. Now a little bit of that was solved with Alex Moreno in January. So speed from left back. Bailey looks fast, but because he can't ride contact because he always gets when he gets knocked, he goes down. Fine, it's a foul, but you can't open the game up because you can't ride the contact. And Watkins was trying to stay in the middle. Villa felt a bit slow at points. And I was just hoping they'd go out there and buy someone who had not necessarily electric pace, although Musa Diaby is very, very fast, but just has that game-changing turn of speed. So when they signed Diaby, I was like, yeah you fixed it. you figured it out. And then beyond that, I wanted to see some depth in central midfield um, because Dendonka is not quite there. And I also wanted to see a bit of depth at right back, which didn't come. Uh, it didn't come at all. Um, and th- the backdrop to this is that Ashley Young had played most of the games through the back half of the season. Cash had come back late from the World Cup and sustained a bit of an injury. And a lot of fans got the impression that Emery wasn't that keen on Cash. Now that may just have been wrong, Although, again, we've got some examples early this season where might 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 prove the point that it was right. But either way, it was like, well, Emery either doesn't like any of his right-backs because he released Ashley Young at the end of his contract, or, he, or, or now Young's gone, you might need a bit of depth because you've got a European campaign. And they basically ignored the position. They just didn't do anything with it. I think they need to address it in January, for what it's worth. But so far, it's okay. 
So the first couple of players through the window, um, they came in quite early. It was um, Pau Torres for 33 million euros from Villarreal, mm -hmm. which is Emery's previous club, and then Yuri Tielemans on a free from Leicester. And this prompted a video from you on the TIFO IRL channel, just asking whether or not Villa's transfers were making them worse. Now, um, that's, a, that's obviously an evocative title, but talk us through what your argument was in that video. So it was an open-ended question, and it was a, it, I was a bit concerned. The reasons I was concerned were, we'll start with Torres. I like Torres, and I've been talking on this podcast about how Villa needed to move into a more ball-dominant scheme and become more confident and more comfortable with 60% possession and, and find the solutions. And from that perspective, it makes perfect sense to sign Paul Torres because he's one of the best passing centre-backs in the world, really, isn't he? All of his progressing, progressive metrics, you know, long passes or, or, or progressive passes through the lines or dribbling and carrying the ball to break open marking schemes, he's top-notch top, top, top notch in all of those. He does, however, have a bit of a history of being a bit timid and not so strong in aerial duels. So there's a trade-off with Paul Torres. He's great at some things and he's not great at others. In a vacuum, this is okay. But based on the fact that he's left-sided, left-footed, and would therefore play on the left, I was a little bit worried that they were going to either take Tyrone Mings out of the team, who is the leader of the team and the dominant aerial figure at set-pieces, or they were going to move him to the right-hand side onto his weaker right foot and ask him to be very involved in, in build-up play that was under intense scrutiny. Now, none of this actually came to pass because they didn't play a single minute together because, unfortunately, Mings got a season-ending knee injury 20 minutes into the first game at Newcastle and was stretched off and Paul Torres came on. So really, an injury has, has avoided this question completely. But I was watching Spurs versus Fulham a couple of weeks ago and I was watching Calvin Bassey, left-footed, playing on the right, passing out vertically on his right foot and Fulham conceding the same goal twice in a row off the back of it and thinking... That's what I was worried about with Mings on the right. I think it's a legitimate concern, but circumstances have basically eradicated that concern. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's talk about Tielemans then as well, on top of that then. So what, was your, what were your concerns with him? So my concern with Tielemans is, and, and some of this may just be the fact that, you know, he'd zoned out a bit at the end because Leicester was, was a disaster by the end. But Tielemans has played a hell of a lot of football. You know, he's been essentially playing first-team football week in, week out since he was 16. He's now 26, so it's 10, like 10 full years of senior football plus like 70 appearances for Belgium or whatever. Like he's, the man's played a lot of football. And when you sign a player on a free, it might, it might be quite good for FFP because it's a zero spend. But when you sign a player like that on a free, you know you're giving him a big wage. That man will be on 100 grand a week or more. And he's got a four-year deal. And if I think he's physically peaked or played his best football or has maybe one year left because he started earlier so he may finish earlier... I'm worried that the club is then saddled with a pretty gargantuan contract for two to three years. And it just kind of, that, that's how Villa went down in the first place. Like, you know, not that long ago, big contracts like that and an inability to manage them or get out of them, that can, that can be terminal for a club. And, and Villa went down with, with Micah Richards on 60 grand a week. He couldn't get on the pitch. That, that, that. We've all got scars and that stuff scares me. So that's what I was pointing to with Tielemans. And... Look, he's played pretty well these last couple of weeks. He was pretty dreadful for the first two and a half months. I don't know where I stand on him. I felt immediately vindicated. He's starting to catch my eye. That said, he's playing literally anywhere but central midfield. Like, he's, he plays as the 10, he plays left mid. Emery is trying to find something. Trying to find a position to make... Like, he's having to work really hard to get Tielemans into form and, and into the team. And he's having to do it and fielding him in positions that... I don't think Tielemans would ever have expected to play. And I guess, again, that comes back to the beauty of, of an Unai Emery system where you have the flexibility and the, yeah. you know, the non-standard positions that you can actually take a player who may be not performing in the area you might want them to and try them out somewhere else. Yes, absolutely. 
Musa Diaby, let's talk about him because he is the marquee signing of the summer. You've already mentioned that he, he brings speed with him from Leverkusen, uh, where he joined from uh, for 55 million euros. Presumably pretty positive about that signing when it happened. Yes, big time. It didn't. It happened not long after I'd done the video on Torres and Tielemans and I remember tweeting, yeah, no concerns about this one, buddy. Like this, <laughs> like, this is exactly what Villa needed. Like, this is the, the exact player that I would point to. Like, they'd started getting linked to him, but he had a link to Newcastle and he had a link to Saudi Arabia. And obviously, back in the summer, as soon as Saudi Arabia entered the conversation, people were like, well, well better move on to the next one. But he chose the Premier League and he chose Aston Villa and he chose Unai Emery, who maybe not coincidentally, he had worked with for a brief period at PSG. So maybe that was a factor. But either way, he chose Villa and he's exactly what Villa needed. Yes, the speed, a little bit of diversification in attack, like another source of goals outside Watkins. Someone that can work off Watkins. Okay, you can play him wide. You can play him as the sort of support striker. He's mostly played in a front two with Watkins, like classic Emery. Doesn't play the winger on the wing. Doesn't matter. He plays up front. Great player. Three goals and three assists in the league so far this season. Doesn't quite tell the whole story. I think he's got tw 22 chances created from open play through 13 games, which is pretty good as well. The window was rounded off with a couple of loan transfers in the form of Nicolo Zaniolo from Galatasaray and Clement Longley from Barcelona. So looking back at the end of the summer on that window, how did you feel about it? Yeah, so Longley was basically because Mings got hurt. And they, they just knew they needed another centre-back to cope with a European schedule. So Longley's only played in the Euro, uh, Conference League. And that's that works. That's fine. That's a loan. And Zaniolo, I think, was a, a direct riposte to the fact that Jacob Ramsey broke his metatarsal at the under-21 Euros. And they were going to need somebody else. They are going to need bodies. So they're both kind of like loans or options. or I mean, the Zaniolo deal is like Galatasaray listed like what the terms were and it's like you know when you see those Italian deals which are like we'll buy him if we do eight or this or yeah. this or that and it, it's a bit it's a bit wild um, but of course he had only played like what was it three games that year or something like that like because he went on loan to Galatasaray he basically didn't start ever Gala were winning the league and they were they were looking good they didn't need to bring him in so you're getting a player here who's had two ACL tears and has played like three games of football in eight months. And you need to put him in because Ramsey's done his metatarsal and you're like, off you go, Nicolo, enjoy. And you're like, I hope this works. But it was a Monchi signing. See, Monchi knows him from his time at Roma. He's a big fan of his. And so there was a lot of trepidation here. Like, you know, I've got my concerns about Torres's physicality. I've got my concerns about Tielemans and, and, and how much he's got left in the tank. Longley is okay, but fine because he's cover. And then Zaniolo is, I remember him being really good, but that was a while ago. So, you know, out of all of them, the only one I've given a big green tick to with no concerns is Musa Diaby. And the rest of it is like, I hope it works. Yeah, and um, we, you've mentioned a lot of injuries already. Yeah. Um, and I think that was, the, that was the watchword for the beginning of the season because there was a couple of big injuries um, that have changed the way that we might have expected Villa to play in the current season. So let's start off with the first one. You've already mentioned this, the, the, the Mings-Torres conundrum that you were talking about that went away pretty quickly because Mings was out after 20 minutes. Um, how much of an impact has that injury had on the way that Villa have set up their back line this season? Yeah, so obviously, basically from like 30 minutes onwards in the season, you've now got Luca Dean deputising for Alex Moreno, who's injured. And Pau Torres now in for Tyra Mings in at the deep end. I mean, St James's Park, like, like what, like what a place, like what an atmosphere. The aggression that they play with, like, I could barely think of a worse first matchup for a player that I am a little bit concerned about whether, like, physically he's up to the league. Like Newcastle away, like that's like a, as bad as it gets. And so obviously this is a five-one loss, and there's a lot of goals late from Newcastle which are exploiting a high line. Torres looks terrible. He he does, but. There's a reason that managers don't like changing their defensive line. They don't like changing their centre-back pairing. You need time to get into a cadence. And I think it was only fair, even for me, who had expressed concerns. Like I had, I had to say, like, you have to give this guy a couple of weeks to get, to get used to it. And by and large, it's been okay. 
Torres just needed a bit of time to get to know and work with Conser and work with that high line. He's still struggling with the physicality of some of these Premier League forwards. Like, he is. But it's getting there. And his passing has been such a positive that it has outweighed any real negative so far, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, there's the, the famous cliche of he has good feet for a tall guy, but he has a bad head for a tall guy, doesn't he? he he's, yeah, he seems to. He seems to. Um, he's... Look, I mean, we're all... We all are who we are. I don't think that defenders can necessarily change who they are in terms of their... Like, you're either a super aggressive guy or you're not. And, like, that's down to personality type as much as playing style. And Torres is a very cultured man. He's got wonderful blue eyes, a very handsome face, and he doesn't <laughs> want to jeopardise any of that, you know? <laughs> not all defenders want to put their head in where it hurts. It's fine. Um Again, there's a trade-off. He's very, very good with the ball at his feet. He's not quite so good aerially. Concert has traditionally been a little bit weak in the air as well. So as a combo, I was like, ooh, what's going to happen here? But they've got by. They've been okay. That's okay. Torres has been an overall positive. Then the other injuries that have impacted you probably the most, really, in this sense, is on that left-hand side. So we've already talked about how important, important Alex Moreno was. And Jacob Ramsey was obviously a, a breath of fresh air last season. And losing both of them on long-term injuries um, changes things because, as you said, last season, left, the left side was where a lot of the ball progression was being done. And you were very soon in the in the season, you were without a lot of the outlets on that All side. All three of them, really, with Ming's gone as well. Yeah. yeah, so what was the response from Emery to those problems? So, again, he's flexible and he's versatile. Um, so he can come up with different options. But at least initially, try to keep the left-sided bias. And that makes sense because Pau Torres was brought to be an on-the-ball centre-back and he plays left centre-back. So he's going to get the most touches in any game that Villa play. He almost always does. And that makes loads of sense, you know. Still funnel the ball through Pau Torres. And while you've lost Moreno and you've lost his, lost his speed, if you can release Luca Dean with the right pass, he's one of the best crossers in, in the game. So you've still got a viable left-sided threat there to use. It's just harder to unlock because Luca Dean doesn't have that top-end pace to run onto the ball. He doesn't, usually, he doesn't like to make that kind of outside overlap run and wait for the ball to be played through. Actually, Torres, you can see Torres trying to get him to make the run sometimes and he doesn't do it. And you can see Zaniolo when he plays on the left, left midfield slot He's kind of looking to his left and he's kind of waiting for Luca Dean to make the run so he can play the ball. Luca Dean has stood still waiting for him to pass the ball to his feet and it is causing some problems. So you could see, you could really see the difference between him and Moreno just in the simple willingness or not to make one run, which opened up so much for that left-hand side. So when it wasn't quite working properly, Emery did try and mess around with it a bit and he tried to move it all over to the right-hand side. And early in the season, we saw Matty Cash play right midfield. Now, some people would say he was a wing back and it was a back three, but the way back lines tilt into a three and a four nowadays, it can be hard to prescribe what they are. I would say that Concer was playing right back and that Cash was playing right mid. And Burnley away, Cash gets on the end of two crosses into the box at the back post, scores two goals. Like he is following the ball. In, he scored from like one yard. He's playing right mid, right? He's playing right mid. So Emery tried to move that left-sided build-up play in combination over to the right-hand side. And it worked to a point. But it's not something that they've stuck with because Cash has ended up back at right-back. And really the game is now funneling through Douglas Louise to a degree that has not been seen before. Whether that's healthy or not, I don't know. Whenever Villa don't play with Douglas Louise, they don't tend to win. They don't tend to dictate the terms of the game and they always have to bring him on. AZ Altmar at home is another example of that. Oh, got to bring Dog on because we need to win the game. Bang, he's on two goals, win 2-1. Maybe that's the, the compromise for now until the left side is back, which is nearly back. Um, but yeah, Emery's tried a lot of different things, but nothing has quite stuck in the way that that left-sided combo did. Yeah, and the thing that you've talked about there is that both fullbacks are being expected to get forward and, and help out on the attacking side of the game. That has led to another tactical shift that we've seen this season, I think, just to give maybe a little bit more protection to a team that's playing with flying wingbacks, uh, fullbacks like that. And that is uh, the use of Bubakar Kamara in possession. So talk to me about what we've been seeing from him on and off this season. Yeah, so early in this, so Kamara plays, you know, alongside Louise in, in the middle of the midfield, right? They're the, they're the midfield pair. Um, so in the 4-4-2, they are in the centre. Uh, Kamara plays on the right of the two and, and Louise on the left. 
And, uh, you know, Villa, when they were trying to press and sort of counter-press early this season, right from the off, even at St. James's Park, Camera in particular was getting by- bypassed high up and it was causing some problems. Um, he's very, very good, but he was really struggling to control transition attacks from the opponent. And while he was pushing up and engaging, he was getting beaten and then leaving huge spaces in behind. This isn't to pick on him, but like it was becoming a bit of a problem and it was mostly him. So Emery, I think, recognised this and did something that I thought was really interesting. Off the back of the international break in September, Villa had just lost 3-0 at Liverpool. It's a really bad, really bad performance. Um, They came back in and it was Palace at home. This was the one I went to and immediately noticed Camera is dropping into the back three and build up. So you've now got, you've got your back four and you've got your fullbacks. The fullbacks push up and become wingbacks. Pau Torres shifts over to the left-hand channel. Conza goes dead centre. And Camera drops out of midfield completely and into right centre-back. Anybody that's watched Camera over the years at Marseille will know that he played some combination of right-back, centre-back, right-centre-back, DM. He's actually a very intelligent player. And Bielsa used him really well at Marseille in that kind of hybrid three-way role. So Emery is just, in a way, just kind of running it back based on what he did at Marseille. And just when Villa are on the ball in sustained possession, Camera now vacates the midfield and drops into the back line. They build with the back three. McGinn shifts in from the right. Zaniolo shifts in from the left, creates a midfield three around Douglas Louise. So that's the outside midfielders shifting inward to become number eights. The front two remains. And the 4-4-2 becomes a 3-5-2. And not only is it really clean at progressing the ball, gives Torres a nice channel to work, it protects channels going back the other way much better because Camera in that position defensively, chasing backwards, seems to be a lot better than when he pushes up and engages because he doesn't lose the jaw high up, he actually wins it further back. And presumably in those lower build-up moments, you're still doing the same sort of structures with those with those deep triangles with yes. the possibility of the two centre midfielders forming the pivot and, and being able to move out and then from the, the goalkeeper yeah. yeah yeah so you're moving from unsettled possession into a settled possession phase where then camera is dropping out and you're forming that midfield three yeah like from goalkeeper and from very deep build up you can still think of it as like a four box two kind of thing where the, the, the two wider midfielders step inside and create that kind of four and then once you get a bit further established possession or if you win the ball in the opposition half and recycle it and reset the pattern that's where it, merge, it morphs into a 3-5-2. So you don't see it in every phase. But I'm pretty sure this is a direct response to the fact that we like we just saw Villa getting caught in transition and getting beaten through midfield too much. And he's, he's done something about it. And the, the move is, is to put camera further back, protect the channel, um, and then bring McGinn into that position where he is pushing up and engaging where camera was. And McGinn's better at it. It's really hard to shake off, right? It's really low centre of gravity, turns really well. When he pins you down and chases you, like, that's it, you're done. So McGinn has been better at that and camera has been shifted back. And it's not just that it's had a good impact from a defensive point of view. Actually, I think Villa's attacking numbers have gone up this season as well compared to last season. So from the video that I did last season saying that Villa were, were overperforming their underlying numbers, they've now got to a position, which is what I was arguing in that video, if they can get to a scenario where they're able to flip their numbers around so that they're creating more and better chances than their opponents, then they're going to be in a situation where they're sustainably a very good team. And that's what we're seeing this season, right? 100%, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's there's a distinction to make between, you know, home and away form. But at home, they're flawless. Absolutely flawless. Maximum points so far. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And right now, the balance of this team and the way it shifts, it works. It works for the personnel. It covers everybody's weaknesses. In eight games' time, it might not work as well, and Emery might have to come up with something else. But he's already on his like third iteration of Aston Villa inside a year. He is one of those managers who, if you give him five games, six weeks, he will figure it out and he will he will produce a new model that fixes something. He really is that good. Yeah, and so we're in this scenario then where we've talked a lot about Unai Emery's ability to change things up, even in response to unforeseen circumstances. So how has that changed your assessment of, of Emery? Because I, we, we, all, we always knew that Emery was one of these coaches who solves tactical problems but I think it's only once you're he's managing at your club where you you know the ins and outs of everything and you see that actually happening in action 
How did that change your opinion of him? Yeah, it's funny. Like my perspective of him at Arsenal was that like I appreciated how willing he was to tweak and to change, and how proactive he is at doing that. Because I hate it when managers just sit there, watch something that doesn't work, and then make subs on the sixty-minute mark, and it's like for like like personnel. Like that is so like reductive and so frustrating to watch when you know that someone can get more involved and be more hands-on. So you, I appreciate that. But at Arsenal. Sometimes I felt like he'd play at three different formations in the same 90-minute patch. Whether or not that's my brain rewriting history based on how I know that finished or whether or not that was actually true. But my perception of Arsenal under him was that they were a bit jumbled and he was a bit too hands-on and he tweaked in-game too much. That has not been the case at Villa. Like, he set out a stall, maybe, maybe aided by the fact that, you know, when he came in, he had who he had and that was it, Right and get to go and make five new signings. Like, this is your team, build it, run it. And it lasted all the way through. He's obviously made another couple of tweaks here. He's found another solution. But while he's been hands-on, it's not been anywhere, from my perception, it's not been anywhere near as as pernickety and, and fidgety as he was at Arsenal. Maybe you can speak to that as a more neutral person. Like, was he was he indeed way more hands-on with Arsenal to a to a deficit? Well, I wonder whether or not a lot of this comes down to the fact that, as we've already said, when he comes in at Villa, he takes a squad of players who are in 17th and gets them up to 7th, right? Mm. Which is a massive turnaround and perhaps the ability to take a squad that was underperforming and get them to a position where they're overperforming gives you a certain amount of license to, you know, not have to panic so much, not not have to think, yeah. I need to try and find the the fine margins to, to take this team to the next level, which I think puts probably the temptation was there when he was at Arsenal to be doing that, right? To, you got to win every game at Arsenal. Sure. So yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe he's like, oh my God, 15 minutes left. I I can't draw this. Like, what, what shall I do? Let's, let's switch formation again. Whereas Villa, it's like, okay baby steps maybe that's it yeah and and from the very off of Villa it seemed as though that system clicked the players fit that system and it, it you know ever since then they've they've been flying but I do want to talk about a couple more tactical things before we get on to starting to wrap things up first of all the high line because this is something that gets talked about all the time whenever it happens not just at Villa but obviously there's the the famous Spurs Chelsea game recently where Postacoglu kept playing high line even though he was down two players. What's your take on the Villa high line, which seems to get critiqued every time Villa lose, but no one really talks about it when Villa win? Yeah, I mean, this high line has been in place all year. Um, it it mostly works. There's not that much to wring your hands about. You know, sometimes it gets exploited, sometimes it fails. The opening day against Newcastle was admittedly a disaster. But we do have some mitigating circumstances there. The leader of the line was Tyrone Mings. Within 20 minutes, he's out. Paul Torres has never played a minute of Premier League football and he's thrown in and Villa are losing. Obviously, it didn't go well. And yes, towards the end, when Harvey Barnes kept running in behind, it looked potentially a little bit naive. But within three games, Paul Torres was up to speed. Everything was ironed out. And it hasn't really been a massive problem since. Like... Yes, teams get in behind and they have chances. AZ Alkmaar scored a goal in, in match, match day four in the Conference League where Pavlidis got in behind and scored and they had another one ruled out narrowly just before. Fulham had one ruled out narrowly and got in behind this previous weekend. Um, it's going to give up chances. You're, every team is going to give up chances one way or another. They look like bigger chances when it's the space in behind. But Villa caught Forrest offside nine times a couple of weeks ago. The goals were weird. They lost the game. Like, the, the, it's not that much of a problem. And the fact that you can catch a team offside nine times and get done by some unfortunate goals is probably a good thing, really, that your line works so well that you caught a team offside nine times. Like, I don't know what the, the general numbers are, but I'm pretty sure whenever I look at a betting line on offsides, it's like over and under is like two or three. Nine is outrageous. This works. It's worked all year. Villa went through a spell last season when they were on the charge. They didn't concede a goal for like five weeks. Guess what? They were playing the high line the entire time. It's not as simple as, oh, big chance conceded, this doesn't work. Okay, sometimes it fails, but so does everything. Trade-offs, isn't it? It's always trade-offs when you talk about tactical aspects. And, you know, we started off by talking about how dangerous Villa have been in terms of Mm counter-pressing. You don't get that unless you're playing a high line. And so... With all of these things, I think you know there's, there, there, there always there always 
open to questioning because if you get to a point where you feel as though you are giving up too many chances in behind and you're not getting the benefit of your counter pressing yeah. it may be the case to start rethinking the, the way that you approach but like you say in, in terms of the overall big picture taking those individual moments out where you're like oh this was the high line therefore the high line is bad if you look at the overall picture i think there's there's probably not much to worry about on the part of 100 and look there's, there's there's pace in the villa back line you know mings is fast torres is fast people don't realize how fast torres is his sprint speed is quite high. Moreno's fast, like they have the players to do it. And then obviously every tactic you build has to be based around personnel and whether or not it works. And if Villa was stood there with Shea Given in goal, I'd say you probably shouldn't do this because Shea Given doesn't want to leave his box. Emi Martinez is one of the best goalkeepers in the world. He's an incredible sweeper keeper. And if it does need, if, it, if the tactic does need him to step out and do something, well, then nine times out of 10, he does it. So it works. Okay, it can look a bit sketchy at times, but it works. The other thing that I want to talk about this season is the discrepancy between your home form and your away form. You've already mentioned three, three point, uh, points per game average at it's home in the Premier gets, League. It's yeah. as high as it gets. <laughs> so obviously, obviously home form, not much to worry about there, but the away form has been a little bit more uh, able to be criticised. And I think you're, you're, you're just over one point per game away from home. Um, in the Premier League this season, which is massive the discrepancy between um, three points and I think it's one point one seven. It's around yeah. that. Um, what's your take on this? But is this is this a cause for concern? Yes, massively. Um, but at the very least, we know why it's happening. Yeah. Um, what we talked about before, with you know how Villa basically got into good positions last season, was they were scoring early, and then once you're ahead you can dictate the terms of the game, right? You're allowed to control possession. You're allowed to control the speed of the game. You can even control where the game is played. If you're losing, it's much harder to do that. So Villa would take the lead in the first 15 minutes and then they would um, create those artificial transitions where they would bait a press and play through it. You can only do that if a team needs the ball. If you're 1-0 down and you stand with the studs on the ball and say, come and get it, and the other team goes, no, we're 2-0 up. I'm sorry, but that doesn't work. But if you're in the ascendancy and you have the lead, you have control. That was Villa's best friend last year. This year, away from home, it is their greatest enemy. So, Forest lost 2-0, conceded in the fifth minute. Everton at home, the only home game they've lost this season, although they didn't take it too seriously because it was the Carabao Cup, 15-minute concession. Legia Warsaw, three minutes. Liverpool, three minutes. Newcastle, six minutes. I don't know what's going on with the players' heads. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what it is. Prep, atmosphere... Mentality, I don't know what it is, but it's very obvious that Villa, away from home, start slow, concede, and then cannot get their way back into that game. They cannot play in a losing game state away from home. As all these games they've conceded in the first basically six minutes and gone on to lose. They cannot claw back control. But if they score first, they always win. So it's a huge discrepancy between home and away form. And the only difference is... These, one set of games is at Villa Park and the other isn't. Yeah, and some of the goals that you conceded early have, have been sort of quite sloppy as well. I remember the, the game at Anfield where yeah. um, it comes from a corner, the ball comes out to the edge of the box and Soboslai yeets it in from, from distance and that's it. That's and effectively that's, game over, three and that's minutes off in. The, that's off the back of Torres trying to dribble past Salah inside his own box, loses the ball and then puts it out for a corner and thinks the danger's gone and then Soboslai hits it in. So like that is a problem of your own making. That notwithstanding, yeah. you've just made a video looking at whether or not Villa can be considered genuine top four contenders that's just gone out on our IRL channel. So again, do go and check that out, listeners. Talk us through your argument in that video. Do you think that Villa should be in the conversation for top four contenders? And I guess with the caveat that, you know, it's technically a top five contenders if if the English teams can uh, stop underperforming in the <laughs> Champions League, right? If Man United can sort it out. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So yes. yeah, it's perfectly perfectly likely to happen, right? Right, so uh, the calendar year table has Villa played 34, 68 points. Same number of points as Arsenal. More than Liverpool, more than everybody else except City. Incredible, like genuinely incredible. And like from that perspective, like 34 games is very close to a full season sample. So it's no longer early impact it's no longer he's only had half a season it's no longer he's only had one this is a nearly a one full season sample size and Villa are running at a top four rate the XG is consistently above the XGA the goals are flying in like the wins are like yes they're overperforming XG but like 
when you win 6-1 and 4-1 and 3-1 and 4-1, you can give a bit of leeway to that. A very good team, consistently running at a points per game average that would put you in, in with a shout of the top four. But <laughs> there's this European schedule to contend with. It's not the deepest squad. An injury to Douglas Louise would be a disaster. An injury to Ollie Watkins would change everything. Villa have not yet reached the point where they can replace these kinds of players and be okay. So there's a bit of luck and a bit of variance to go with the injuries. You want to be careful using that word, you know. Yeah. The, the, the L word. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I mean, look, I'm <laughs> saying injury luck. I'm saying nothing else. You, 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 do, you, do, you, need to, you need to run the right side of it on the injuries. And then what happens in March if Villa return to European competition and right from the very start of this season we've, we've all been saying if Villa win that trophy that's a great season Emery's the master of European competition Villa needs silverware 1996 was the last time everyone was bought in on the idea that the Conference League is the priority what if it's not what if you get to March and Villa are fourth or fifth and you have to make a, a decision you did not think you'd have to make Suddenly, Thursdays aren't actually as important as you thought they would be. Suddenly, they take the back seat. Suddenly, Ollie Watkins is being arrested on a Thursday and John Duran is leading the line in the Premier League or, or vice versa. Like, what, what happens? So there's a lot to digest over the Christmas period and see, see what kind of shape Villa are going to be in. I don't think they're going to have that much spending room in, in January. Not with that Diaby purchase. And not given the state of that Nicolo Zaniolo deal, which is like, like a Klarna deal. It's like buy now, pay in 55 years. Like, I don't think there's that much wiggle room. I don't think Villa will get to January and be like, we're third, let's buy three players. I don't think it's FFP possible. So much to happen over the course of the next three months that will shape this and decide this. But if Villa get to March and they're in that touching distance, I expect them to go for it. Because while silverware is literally what football is about, these owners will know that that step to the Champions League is the best possible next step that they can take. Mm. Yeah, and it's going to be a really fun rest of the season because it's been a really fun uh, period so far under Unai Emery. There's lots of reasons for Villa's recent success, but I think Unai Emery has to be up there amongst the prime movers in that in that shift. So Unai Emery has had lots of jobs now at different levels. We've had the chance of seeing him play in lots of different leagues as well and succeed at, at different levels as well. But the assumption has become that he suits a very particular type of club. So to close, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on what makes Emery such a good match for Villa. So I've given this a lot of thought because, yeah, lots of people will say perfect, perfect manager for this size club. And like, what does that actually mean? I agree with it, by the way. But what does that actually mean? And why, you know, and does that mean that Valencia and Villarreal are the same size as Villa? Arguably, yes, in the European standing. What does that actually mean? And I've come to the conclusion that that thing we hear about all the time with Emery, which is he's very intense, he likes his 90-minute meetings, he sits his players down, he shows them a PowerPoint presentation, they're in there for a while. I don't know how much time there is on the grass, but I'd say there's probably... About they're about level in terms of in the boardroom, not boardroom in the in the room with the with the the PowerPoint presentation and the grass. Footballers can get bored of this, and I I, I think a certain caliber of footballer actually will not accept this. That might be disingenuous to them. I don't know, but if you're Unai Emery and you take control of Aston Villa and they're underperforming massively. And you do these meetings and the players get you get that initial buy-in from you know a player of Matty Cash's level, a player of Ollie Watkins' level. You show them these things and they immediately get way better and they continue to listen to you and it continues to go well, so they continue to buy in. Fantastic. If you're Unai Emery and you take the job at PSG and you turn around and say like, right, Neymar, listen in for 90 minutes, son, because this is what I want you to do. I'm not convinced it has the same effect. And I'm not convinced it has the same buy-in. That is an argument you may also be able to level to that iteration of Arsenal. Whereas with a Villa, with a Valencia, with a Villarreal, and particularly the, the Spanish clubs where he can be fluent, I just think it lands on that level of player. They still have enough thirst for growth and willingness to learn to listen to him. And once the immediate results come, which they always do, they feel emboldened by that, 
and they go for it and they latch on. Whereas I think that type of management, it's it just struggles for the buy-in at the very, very top level. And over the course of 15 turbulent years, Unai, we have learned which band of player can really benefit from Unai Emery and which band may be unwilling to. Yeah, I think that touches on one of the big questions about football tactics, right, which is the, the balance between tactical structures and tactical ideas and innate talent. And uh, like you say, at, at PSG, you can go a long way by simply allowing the players to do their thing. Um, but when it comes to these, these teams, maybe in, in different situations where they don't have that level of technical um, talent to be able to buy into, then you can, you can get a huge amount out of having your players well-drilled, knowing what they're doing and having solutions for, for every problem. I like to call this the, the Marcelo Bielsa effect, right? Mm. Um, Bielsa, a very similar kind of coach in terms of just aesthetic to, um, to Unai Emery insofar as held up as a, as, as a, a great example of, of coaching acumen, but never really succeeded at, 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 the, at the highest level of the game. Um, almost to a point where you could argue that he doesn't enjoy the challenge of being a top-level coach, likes the ability to come in and the, the, the possibility of coming in and taking a, a group of players and making the whole greater than the sum of their parts. Um, and I think that's absolutely the same with, with Unai Emery. And it's been, it's been fantastic to watch him doing this in, in the Premier League. Um, I think a league, you know, which is stacked with talent, being able to take them and, and drill them in that sort of, you know, hardworking way where you, you say, here's the tactical ideas, we're going to work through them, we're going to spend time improving in that way, but there will be an outcome and you can buy into this project or, you, or you, you don't need to. But if you buy into it, it will make you a better player overall. Brighton have a worse squad than West Ham, in my opinion. But there's a big key difference and that's that one manager gets the, the best out of one set and one manager doesn't. And there's actually probably not that much difference quality-wise between Aston Villa and West Ham. You know, Lucas Paquetar and Mohamed Kudus, could, they would walk into Villa's team. They're literally better than, than most of their players. Um, so the squad quality only gets you so far. And the, 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 big, the big leveller, or in some cases just difference maker, can be the coaching, which Unai Emery excels at, and can be the preparation and the planning, as long as you get the buy-in, of course. Well, Sam, it's been fantastic talking to you about Unai Emery's Aston Villa. If our listeners want to find out more of what Sam is doing, he is on Twitter at STIFootball, and Ty is spelled T-I-G-H-E. For those people wondering and as we've already said he can also be found on sky sports espn who scored and of course with us here at tifo irl do go and check out his recent video it's well worth watching and we'll be back next week with another fantastic guest mm-hmm.